Welcome to The Lancet Voice. It's February 2023. I'm Gavin Kleber, and I'm delighted to be joined by Jessamy Bagnall and Phoebe Ashley-Norman. Hello, Jessamy. Hello, Phoebe. Hi. We're in the office together. Exciting. It's very exciting to have two people in one place doing this podcast. It's still mind-blowing. Yeah, it's a rarity. So we should say to our listeners, of course, it's The Lancet's 200th anniversary. And if you listen to our first podcast of the year with Richard Orton, You'll have heard us discuss our spotlights for the year, which are areas that we kind of really want to focus on so we can drive some change in those areas. For each spotlight, we're going to have four themed podcasts. And so this is Spotlight One, Episode One. We're here at the very beginning. The first spotlight is Child and Adolescent Health. And Phoebe, who joins us, is part of the team organising the Child and Adolescent Health Spotlight. She's hosting the interview that you're going to hear today. Uh, Phoebe, for this first podcast, why don't you tell us a little bit? Well, first about yourself and learn about what topic you've chosen for this first podcast and, and why it's so interesting to you. Yeah, sure. So hi, everyone. I'm Phoebe. I work as an editorial and assistant in the journal office here at Lancet. And my background's in biochemistry. So I studied um, undergrad and master's. Um, and today we're going to be talking about peer support. Um, we've got three excellent guests from across the globe, and all of them have expertise in this field, which really focuses on youth and adolescents in this context offering support to people who are going through issues that they themselves have gone through and recovered from in the past. So really offering one-to-one and community-based treatment and help and assistance in contexts like HIV for um, Tanaka, which he'll discuss throughout the podcast, and mental health and um, suicide prevention as well. So yeah, it's a really interesting podcast and I'm looking forward to you all and hearing about it. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting topic, isn't it? What's, what's kind of some of the importance of, of peer support? Yeah, so peer support is a really important first point of call, I think. A lot of young children and adolescents, if they're going through mental health problems or diseases that they don't have that much information about, they find it really hard to go to professionals or to adults as a first contact. And actually having a peer supporter, someone who's of a more similar age to you, who's gone through this experience recently, and has personal lived experience, it creates a really useful bridge between higher up services and professionals and people, especially children and adolescents who are dealing with those issues on a day-to-day basis in their lives. I think that's great. Well, we're super happy to have you on board for this, Phoebe. And um, it's a wonderful interview, which everyone is going to hear next. Okay, wonderful. So I'd like to introduce you all to the Lancet Child 200th Anniversary Lancet Special Podcast on peer support for obviously children and adolescents. And I'm really excited to introduce our panel um, and I'll have them introduce themselves. We've got Ramona Hiltonsberger, Karim Zindi and Naka Mokunwa. So Ramona, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself to start off with, please? Of course. Thank you so much. I was really excited uh, to be invited to you. So um, my name is Ramona Hildensberger. I'm a psychologist by profession, and I work as a researcher in Ulm University in Germany. My main research interests are peer support in mental health, uh, global mental health, and implementation science. For the past five years now, I've been working in the Upsides Project, which is a large multi-center study that uh, aims to uh, evaluate and scale up peer support interventions for adults with severe mental illness in both uh, low, middle and high income countries. Wonderful. Thank That's you. So much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, Karim, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself now, please? Of course. Thank you. So hello, my name is Karim Zudi. I'm a second year med student 
in Florida and the United States. And I also wanted to start off with just an honor being here. It's great being in such a great company. So I'm here in America and I'm passionate about medical education, about rare diseases and just improving physical and mental well-being for children and adolescents. I also volunteer as a counselor for the crisis text line, which I can go into a little further. And I'm also on the youth advisory panel for the Lancet Child and Adolescent Journal. Exactly. Wonderful. Thank you. And um, Tanaka, would you like to introduce yourself quickly? Hey, uh, my name is uh, Tanaka Mkua uh, from Zimbabwe. I'm working with uh, Shandiri uh, as a peer supporter and as a peer advisor board member and also uh, a community adolescent treatment supporter working at Zimunia Clinic. Um, I'm also passionate uh, on peer support and uh, it has led me to being awarded an honorary doctorate uh, in developmental studies on ending child marriages and abuses by the University of London and World Health Organization. And I'm also, I'm also into various international boards, such as the International Board for Young People's Network on Child Marriages, Abuses and Rights. And also I am a climate change activist, um, mainly focusing on uh, what uh, climate change uh, affects the youth. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so just to start off our conversation, I wanted to ask a very general question, which was just, what is peer support, especially in terms of mental health for young people, and why is it important? Um, Ramona, can I come to you first on this one, please? Yes, yes. Um, so I would say in a nutshell, peer support is when a person in recovery um, offers support to other people currently experiencing mental health problems. and. What this may entail now in detail, that can differ a little bit from, from um, setting to setting. But overall, peer support workers can be seen as some sort of mentors um, that promote the recovery journey of their clients. And they do that, for example, in form of providing practical help, such as conversations about mental health problems or counseling, um, how to promote recovery. So that would be the basic description that I can offer, but every, every peer support organization has their own definitions. And um, I think that's also a good thing. It's very flexible and um, I'm happy to, to hear what my other colleagues here have to add. Yeah, wonderful. Um, Tanaka, could you talk perhaps um, about the specific example of Zvandiri and how peer support um, is implemented in your setting? Okay, um, I will start by the definition of peer support um, for, I think, mental health. I think it encompasses a range of activities and interactions uh, between people who share similar experiences. Uh, for example, being diagnosed with mental health condition, uh, substance use disorders and all, and, and so on. And um, here in Zimbabwe, um, we are offering many uh, things in peer support, uh, which, shall, which I shall discuss uh, a bit further um, when I'm asked the other question. So here, uh, we are offering mental health support, also uh, TB screening, and also adherence support to adolescents, children, adolescents, and young people living with HIV. Great, that's wonderful. Could you share your experiences of providing or accessing peer support? through the work of Strandiri, potentially? My, my experience um, 
has been quite uh, good and sometimes hectic because when providing peer support, there are uh, the merits and the demerits of it. And uh, especially uh, the demerits comes when um, the adolescent, uh, the children or adolescent is failing to accept uh, what um, he or she is uh, that is living with HIV. And also that um, the parents may fail to disclose that to their children. So it then becomes a problem when we call for a support group and then they come in large numbers and then we started discussing on sev several issues affecting uh, HIV and AIDS, affecting adherence. So it uh, becomes a challenge when that child uh, hears what others are discussing about how they are coping up with the treatment. And then um, it then becomes a problem when the child knows, which, uh, knows that the medication which I'm taking is HIV. So it then becomes a problem. And also on the um, advantage side of it, uh, I have faced many uh, success stories uh, in providing peer support um, such that um, I, um, I have managed to clear uh, all the adolescents and youths um, who have mental health problems and uh, also referring them to general psychologists uh, who are helping them. And also that I'm also working uh, with uh, YPIN, uh, which is Young People's Empowerment Network to provide uh, uh, in Boso Zandiri, which is a partner to Zandiri, which is um, working on drug and substance abuse. And also peer support is very much more important and needed uh, so that the peers, uh, the other youths know what they really want um, and uh, they feel free to talk with me uh, on several issues and also me being able to provide them with um, requisites, with requisites they need and also that uh, such other mental health um, needs which I will provide. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of that, Tanaka. Um, one of the points you made was really interesting talking about how peer support can act as almost a springboard to allow people who are experiencing mental health problems or similar issues um, to not only have counselling directly with one-on-one -on -one with a peer supporter, but also to access a wider framework of health support and care. Um, uh, Kareem, could I come to you at this point? Because I'm aware that you have experience working as a counsellor on a suicide hotline. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how that fits into the wider scheme of care and how you can help people to access um, through peer support, other sources. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So I volunteer for an organization called Crisis Text Line. So it is basically a 24-7 platform where if someone's in a crisis, if someone has talked with ending their life, if someone is going through relationship problems or substance abuse problems, you just want someone to talk to, they can text in a number and then here they are, they get access to a crisis counselor, someone who's who is certified, who was trained, and then they can ask how they can help, how any access to resources, or if they just want someone to hear them, someone to hear their concern, someone who can lend a listening ear. So a lot of times on the platform, there might be an issue that I can't exactly perform. I can't exactly help to the best of my abilities because it's above my pay grade. It's above my knowledge. And there are other people who are more trained in that. So for example, I remember there was one story where someone said they were overdosing and they were concerned about telling their mother about, they were concerned about telling their mother about 
them going to the hospital because they didn't want their mother's fury or their mother's anger. So my job was to help them at that moment, to be able to have the courage to tell their mother, to walk them through what their thought process was. And then later on, it goes to the next step of care where they go to the EMS or they go to the hospital and they can get further care from there. But I think peer support is important as that first step to access other medical care. But without the peer support, oftentimes the healthcare goes missing. They don't get to those next steps. Great. That's a really wonderful point. Thank you for sharing that. Um, picking up on your point about training and having um, people who are certified, and I know that in Zandiri as well, there's a lot of training that goes on to enable counsellors to be um, to implement peer support and to act as a mentor to people um, who are suffering problems that they may have experienced themselves in the past and have and worked their way through themselves. One of the concerns about peer support programmes is the burden that it places on young people without Formal qualifications, they still have training, but without, you know, they may not be doctors. Um, are there any negative impacts to being a peer support worker? And what are the benefits and what kind of training and support can we provide for peer support workers to allow them to do their job to the best of their ability? Yes, I just I can only second and say it is a very challenging job. Absolutely. And um, my, my uh, how can I say this, uh, my, my biggest... Um, uh, respect to everyone doing this job um it is definitely in my opinion and also from my experience now over the past years it is necessary for peer support workers to receive some sort of training to prepare them for this job uh, but what we have found to be even more helpful is for peer support workers to have some sort of network of other peer support workers or mutual support groups um, so someone also doing the same job can help and give advice, stay, share experiences um, from the day-to-day life of a peer support worker. It is also helpful to have, um, for example, supervision by a clinical supervisor. But in my personal opinion, the mutual support among peer support workers and having a network is even more important. Um, so to to help also with the fact that often peer support workers they work quite alone. So there might be a hospital and this hospital employs one or two peer support workers. And they're the only one in this hospital with this job description, for example. And it's quite challenging. So we found it very important for peer support workers to have a network. Uh, and to have some sort of training that prepares them for it. We we did develop in Upsides uh, a training manual for peer support workers for adults. Um, and um, I was also a trainer and had the honor to train a team over here in Ulm. And yeah, it was a, it was a really interesting adventure and journey over the past years. Yeah. Wonderful. I can imagine that training a group like that really does forge strong connections between the members who train together and then who then go off and offer peer support to individuals, but still maintain those group bonds from their training themselves. Um, Tanaka, do you have anything to add here about training um, potentially for uh, Zvandiri um, peer supporters? How do you implement that within your organization? Is Zvandiri uh, in Zimbabwe. Uh, we are training peer supporters, uh, and also giving them the necessary uh, equipments 
so that they will do their work and also a motivation, uh, which is like um, a volunteer allowance, which is given to them so that they will really feel appreciated and they work hard to achieve uh, a certain goal. But the problem then comes uh, on, on uh, other necessities which are needed by peer supporters, which uh, we, we, we really can provide um, is uh, Shandiri, but being provided by other organizations. Um, so we have been referring them to other organizations so that they would help. And also that um, in, the, in the Shandiri program, we are also um, training uh, peer supporters and other community members so that they will provide much more uh, information and also for information dissemination uh, and uptake to the uh, adolescents and young people, children, adolescents and young people. And also that um, we are providing them with um, necessary data collection tools so that it will be easy for them to collect the data which we want on peer support. And also that we are, um, we are, we are, we are also providing them with um, other transport logistics so that they will feel free to move doing their work. Great. Wow, that's really wonderful. That's great to hear. Thank you. Um, so you're talking about logistics and moving and people getting really one-on-one -on -one direct support within quite close communities. But as we know, peer support is not only an in-person activity. It can also be provided across many different platforms. Um, for example, over phone lines, um, some organizations create apps which allow people to form peer support networks um, by technology. And um, I wondered if um, you think that there's an optimal way of delivering peer support as a form of care to children and adolescents specifically. And what are your experiences of using different methods? Um, Karim, could we come to you here first, please? Yeah. So... There is a time and place for every resource and everything has benefits and drawbacks. But here at Crisis Text Line, what I find helpful is that everything is through text. So a lot of it is anonymous. So for instance, if someone is having trouble in school during their lunch break, they can be on their phone and, and other people might think they're texting friends or texting loved ones, but they could be reaching out to us. Or let's say a lot of people might have anxiety talking on the phone or seeing someone face-to-face -face and then maybe bumping into them at a local store. So this is completely anonymous. They can reach out. They don't have to worry about having to talk to someone on the phone if that causes them anxiety. So I believe it's a very anonymous and helpful platform for those who might benefit from it. That's great. Just to follow up a bit, um, obviously we're all aware of how COVID has affected young people and adolescents in particular due to increased isolation and not being able to go to schools and access normal social connections that we usually do. And how, how do you think that the hotline has provided a service to those young people who might have experiences of isolation and loneliness? Of course. So even before COVID, a lot of the textures would say that they feel isolated, that they don't feel like they have anyone to talk to. And that was a lot of their concern. They had a lot of these issues that they wanted to talk to them about, but they didn't feel comfortable with anyone around them. So now with COVID, that's only been exacerbated. A lot of people haven't left their house. They've been in situations where maybe they're around people who they don't want to be around and they feel isolated. So through this platform, they're able to have someone who is there to listen to them, someone who no judgment, no, no stigma they can reach out to and 
if they don't want to hear from them ever again, they never have to hear from them ever again. If they don't want to see them, they won't see them because it's all purely through text. So it's nice that the anonymity and the help in just the COVID era, people feeling isolated, people not being connected to others. Great. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Um, Ramona, do you have any experience you could share with us about implementing peer support across different platforms as opposed to just in person? Yes, uh, actually I do. Uh, it was not planned to be like this, but uh, due to the COVID pandemic, we had to adjust and adapt our intervention a little bit. And um, it was quite challenging because um, our intervention was uh, was implemented as part of a research study. So the participants who have signed up for the study and have uh, agreed to participate in the intervention, they were prepared to have face-to-face contacts with peer support workers. So, so they um, actually wanted this uh, interaction and this human connection. And we also aimed to improve the social inclusion of our um, participants, of the clients. And that was challenging in times of a pandemic. Um, but, um, we, we did find ways and, um, what we, what then was one of the best, um, compromise or best things to do was to have, um, meetings if possible outside, outdoors, uh, for example, in a public park or somewhere, um, with enough space between, between two people and, um, then maybe do this like once a month and then have two meetings on the phone or or here via via Zoom, for example. So our our peer support workers and clients they got quite um quite uh, creative with solutions uh, to get through this time. Um, but one of the challenges we were facing was when it was a complete lockdown and personal meetings were really not allowed. Um, was hard, especially in the uh, lower income sites that we are implementing to be in touch with the clients because many do not have a phone or a laptop or it was very hard to stay in contact. Um, and it was quite challenging, especially at these sites, I would say, and to, to even stay in touch somehow. So, so clients were using, for example, their their family's phone, maybe one of their family members has a phone. And yeah, so we had to be very creative. And um, my impression was that both clients and peer support workers were very, very happy when they were finally able to meet again in person or meet for the first time in person. That was just my impression, but that might be due to the fact that we... um, that we had this, um, how to say, um, that we had announced this will be a personal contact. Whereas um, Karim and his project, they officially say it is anonymous and you do not have to meet someone. So it's really what people actually want from the peer support. And I think that's also where the beauty of peer support lies because it is so flexible. Um, you can implement it in a variety of, of ways. Yeah, 100%. I completely agree with the flexibility being uh, a massive ad- ben- advantage of, um, of peer support. Um, Tanaka, I saw you nodding along at one point. Do you have anything to add on this about providing peer support across different platforms and different mediums? 
we are also, we have uh, the community adolescent treatment supporters who act as uh, positive role models to strengthen uh, existing networks of social protection. And also they do monthly based support uh, that facilitates learning, uh, confidence building and socializing and also community outreach uh, teams provide more advanced care in the homes of uh, youth living with HIV. But uh, it then comes um, uh, your question that, um, or, or on your question, and then we have to adapt to the situation, which is on uh, at the end, um, that is uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, which has uh, limited us to do home visits for uh, children and adolescents, thereby we're using the mobile uh, health, uh, which is uh, on call. We call, we text uh, on SMSs, we talk to them on WhatsApp, but the problem then comes with uh, those who are in rural areas, those who doesn't have phones, uh, those who doesn't have uh, laptops, computers to communicate with us. Yeah. And then uh, we had to adapt to a situation that would go there with the healthy personnel, uh, also informing the Ministry of Health so that we would go there uh, and offer our support following um, COVID-19 protocols and guidelines. Great. That's that's. That's amazing to hear. Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear about the group settings that you guys host as well. Knowing that knowing that one of the difficulties of peer support can be isolation, the fact that you offer group support is sounds like a great way to combat those kinds of um, difficulties. Thank you so much for sharing that. You mentioned um, briefly about um, the differences of implementing peer support, especially when using um, technological methods across urban versus rural environments, and I know that. Ramona and Tanaki, you both have experience of implementing peer support systems from your home countries into external nations. Um, how can cultural differences across um, countries and also within countries influence how peer support is implemented? Ramona, would you like to talk about this with regards to upsides? Yes, I'm happy to share some of my experiences over the past years that have also now been uh, written up and published in, in two um, papers, uh, if you're interested to read more. Uh, but in a nutshell, I would say that uh, from my experiences and also what we saw in our qualitative studies is that in lower middle income settings, there is a much bigger emphasis on community and to, to implement peer support as a bridge between community and people experiencing mental health problems um, and also peer support workers to be a bridge between patients and mental health staff, for example. Sure. Um, I believe this might be largely due to a stronger stigmatization of mental health issues in lower middle income settings. Um, and also there usually you will have a bit of a uh, how to say, um, a bit of a stronger hierarchy between, for example, a doctor and a patient. So here, the role of a peer support worker to be a bridge builder is especially important, and this should be reflected in the way you implement it. Also, something we have um, discussed a lot and that was quite challenging um, was the role of the peer support worker. Um, for example, in lower middle income settings, um, we talked with staff members uh, in the institutions where we want to implement peer support and they directly said they will value peer support workers very highly 
and they value especially their contribution to um, reduce the workload of mental health workers because they're severely understaffed, especially in low and middle income settings. So on the one hand, this made it a bit easier to implement peer support because the other staff members were very happy to have more support from peer support workers now. Uh, but in the same time, we wanted to be very careful not to have peer support workers as, how to say, a cheaper option to um, to fill gaps in underfunded services. Because we believe that peer support has this unique contribution, the unique perspective that they can bring into services. So that was quite a challenge that we, that, that you will face for. And then when you compare it to higher income settings, for example, here in Ulm in Germany, where I was implementing, we had more of a struggle to find clear role description of peer support workers, but also a distinct role description because there's a quite large variety of services offered and we needed to find a way to integrate this in a distinct and transparent way. So those were some of the differences that I observed when implementing in different um, settings. Great, thank you. That's so interesting. Um, Tanaka, I know that Zvanderi has expanded their services outside of Zimbabwe to neighboring nations. Could you talk a little bit about how this process has worked and whether you have faced any cultural differences that has influenced how you implement peer support and how those countries go and take the principles of Zvanderi into their own, into their own communities? Uh, okay. Um, as of, uh, Zvanderi expanding, uh, in other, um, uh, in other countries, we, we have seen with much great concern that they want the community adolescent treatment support program uh, to be in their countries. And uh, we haven't faced uh, cultural differences yet because we are training um, the community members, the, 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 PA, um, the peer advisory board, uh, and also that uh, the, the community adolescent treatment supporter who are community-based uh, will provide um, the services to the youth and also uh, children and adolescents living with HIV um, to, to make sure that we have uh, an improved uh, access to HIV care and also that the kids uh, act as a positive role model to strengthen existing uh, networks of social protection and they are drawn from the community where they live. And that's why we are saying that a community by led by a community. So we haven't faced any cultural differences because these kids, they are coming from the community which the project is to be implemented. So um, there, is, uh, there are no cultural differences which we have faced yet um, in regards to uh, expanding our project to, to other countries. Great, that's wonderful. Yeah, I, when I was researching uh, Zvanderi, I noticed there were lots of testimonies and people's stories. And I read there were many stories where people had access to peer support. They detailed that their passion and their motivation was then to become a peer supporter, to offer the same kind of support to other youths who come up behind them who face similar problems. And that really struck me as an incredible um, legacy to have, that each peer supporter is generating more motivation for their people that they're supporting to go on and become more like them. And um, yeah, could, have, could, you, could you talk a little bit about some of the, um, the feelings of 
of real hope and motivation that peer support can offer young children and adolescents, especially those who might be suffering with diseases that they've only just been um, been told about recently. The, the impact of the community adolescent treatment supporters in the community, they are helping increasing understanding of medication and motivated adherence, providing mental health screening uh, and other um, and other sort of support, uh, which are the results confirmed the importance of our home visits. Also, the home visits which are being done by community adolescent treatment supporters, they are also helping to motivate uh, other young people to then uh, come to Jandiri and say, we want to join the peer, um, the community adolescent uh, peer support program. And thereby, we are really scoring um, very high on that. Kareem, how do you feel about this issue? Do you, do you feel like people are drawn to become peer supporters and to become counsellors on networks? What, once they've had experiences integrating with the services or how do, you, how do you attract people to become peer supporters and to become counsellors? Thank you. So for one, I do really hope so. So a lot of times after a conversation, they fought a survey and people are like, wow, I'm so happy this, this exists in the first place. I didn't know something like this happened. And this is something that I'm interested in helping myself. So we have heard things like this. And how I heard about it was actually a TED Talk. So the founder was speaking about the crisis, count, crisis tech line and what an opportunity it is that your main qualification, you don't have to be a psychiatrist. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to have all these capabilities. While there is training, of course, and there are supervisors, but one of the main qualifications is just lending a listening ear, like being available, having empathy. And that's something that any of us can have and something that still provides so much value and is in so much need these days. In terms of cultural competency, I think that is really important. And I think one of the best things we can do as pure supporters is knowing what resources are out there for other communities too. So for example, for us in our medical school, we recently just hosted a health clinic at our local mall. And in the Arab and Muslim community, mental health is often hushed or not talked about too much. It's often like, okay, just pray it away. And the wall prayer and like respecting people's culture is obviously very, very important. There are other things that can also help. So while we were there, we were handing out resources for, for example, their online tech support that are specifically catered towards Muslims or in general, other local resources that might be catered towards them. So I think more local, more focused establishments are always really great for bridging cultural divides and helping reach those who might not realize they have access to these opportunities. Great. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, just to finish off this podcast then, I, I wanted to ask you all about the future of peer support and what, um, what would you like the future of peer support to look like? And how do you think peer support can be implemented more into the, in the future to really maximize it as a resource for people and young children and adolescents in particular to use? Um, Ramona, do you want to start with this one? All right. Um, well, as a researcher, we always, you know, want to know more. And, and I, I think we, that the, the evidence base for the effectiveness of peer support is already quite established. Uh, but we need to know more about what is the best way to implement it. 
what is the best way to implement it, for example, now, especially for young people? Um, because I, I'm not quite sure, uh, if we should, um, broaden our, our horizon here a little bit and, and not just think about implementation in a healthcare setting, but also think about implementation for example, in schools or in youth centers and so forth and so forth. So there's a lot of things you could do, a lot of ideas. Um, and I think at least my colleagues here on the podcast, we're all convinced that peer support does work. So we just need to know a bit better how exactly can we make it work best way and how to implement it in the best way. So I, I do see a lot of... Um, implementation science uh, going on in this area, hopefully in the future. Very wonderful. Tanaka, could I come to you next? I think what we want in the future for peer support uh, is very crystal clear. Uh, we need uh, more uh, peer support programs, um, not only on mental health, but on other problems which are being faced by adolescent children and adolescents and young people. Because we are right now facing um, many uh, challenges, such as um, suicide uh, and also other um, things which are affecting the youth. So we we are we really need to upscale from uh, mental health and also offering other uh, other services like TB screening and also with uh, so something like that. And also we want. Um, a peer-led support. When I say a peer-led support is that for the youth, by the youth. Yes, we are saying that we need the youth to be at the forefront of helping other youth because right now, uh, I don't want to, uh, to lie to you, the youth don't want to hear an old person coming to them, telling them that, uh, for example, I'm working with children and adolescents living with HIV. And then an older person comes and tell, um a child, the importance of adhering. They doesn't understand, they doesn't hear, but it needs a, um, a, peer, um, a peer supporter who is a youth to then go and support uh, that child, uh, that adolescent, uh, so that he or she will understand uh, all the things that are needed. Great. That's really powerful. Thank you so much, Tanaka. Kareem? So I think just mirroring what everyone else saying more is the answer. So we already have great foundations and building more organizations, building upon those organizations, just community outreach in general is huge. So getting the youth involved, getting more implementation. I think outreach is also one of those that I believe will make the biggest difference. So because the, a lot of these resources exist, but people aren't necessarily aware of them or it has been spread to some community. I think outreach through social media or through other resources or even just handing out flyers at community centers makes a big difference. So even like among our own circles, it doesn't have to be a community level. It could just be one person who reaches out a hand and offers support and then that continues and continues and people are inspired by that. And I think just on an individual level and a community level, giving back and being open. Wonderful. And that's such a positive note to end on. Thank you so much. I think the things that you've really drawn out, that all three of you have really drawn out, is that peer support is really built on empathy and connection. That with those two guiding principles, it can create really lasting change and provides solace to many people. 
um, especially children, adolescents, and those working through mental health problems and other other problems. So I'd very, like to thank you, thank you all so much for for being with us on this podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It was a pleasure hearing the insights from others uh, in peer support, also learning what they are doing in their countries so that we may reach a certain level of peer support. Thank you so yeah, much. It's, it's amazing to hear about what's going on in all your corners of the world. It's, it's really great that we've managed to make this happen and have this conversation. It's such a great topic. When you, it's a, it's a really nice podcast, but do you feel that this is a, a sort of tool that's being integrated and used enough by health systems and by healthcare professionals? Interestingly, I don't know if it is. I don't know if that many people know about it. And that's why I'm really glad we're shedding light on it today. I think that um, peer support is well known about in the communities that it serves. But I think that beyond that, it's less widely spread. Um, NACA talks very beautifully about peer support in the HIV context and in the work that Svendiri do. And so I think that in those kind of contexts, there's a lot of knowledge about peer support because yeah. it's really creating those networks between individuals and then working within a community. Kareem had some really, really good points on this. And he talks about connection and um, community being two of the most fundamental parts of peer support and really creating strong bonds between individuals who can support each other and then help each other to get higher up services within the kind of yeah. wider health service within their community or within their country or even internationally, to be honest. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it sort of, it really puts into context that kind of health systems thinking of where are the boundaries of health systems mm-hmm. and where do they sit in communities and how, how is that relationship, how does it work and where are the pressures eased? Because this is obviously... Yeah. You know, a crucial part for many people. But, you know, are we really using it to its full effectiveness? I'm not sure. I know that we have published, we, we obviously, there's a huge focus on schools and the importance of schools in mental health. And within that, there's a lot of sort of peer support. But, but outside of the school arena, which is obviously just as important yeah. from a community point of view, I'm not sure about the evidence base there. But was it something that's kind of particularly personal or, you know, that you have a particular interest in that? Made you think about it? Yeah, well, um, I'm not, I'm not the only person involved in this podcast. Hannah Rao from eClinical Med and um, Pippa from Healthy Long Dentity have also been really involved in this. So shout out to them as well. Um, and the three of us kind of came to this topic together. Um, but I personally do have experience with his sport. I trained as a piss sports at university um, and offered it within a collegiate kind of environment, which was a really useful way of learning how to talk about kind of mental health issues and also just shared experiences. I think that some of the key aspects of peer what they brought up there were really to not give advice, but to help people to work through their own problems mm-hmm. and to act as more but in a supporting auxiliary role. So, so yeah, I think that in schools and in universities, it's a really useful tool, but also in communities. It was interesting, Ramona Helgensberger speaks um, in a podcast about the implementation of peer supports in lower and middle income countries versus higher income countries. And then the lower and middle income countries, um, there's a bigger focus on community-based action and there's a lot more strength in community bonds that they see. And the implementation of peer support obviously has to be adapted to the context in which you're working. I think that she's seen that integrating peer support within a community is actually something that's more applicable to those lower and middle income countries and that 
some of the interventions that might apply to higher income countries like using technology and peer support don't apply quite so readily to those other contexts, especially yeah. in rural environments where phone signal might not be so prevalent. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the beauty of peer support is really, I think, it's adaptability because it's so based on individuals and people yeah. and forming these connections. And and yeah, and that's I think that's why it's a nice tool because it's based in communities with people who have lived experience and they can use their own experience and their own knowledge of their local community and their local geography and their local area to really implement the support that they give to people who are younger than them coming up behind them and having several similar problems. And I guess a great example of that is that friendship bench, right? Yeah. In Zimbabwe where I think it, grandmas or, you know, elderly women that sit there and people can come and you heard that. I mean, oh, it's just an amazing it. example. I think it kind of happened almost organically, but it now sort of a more formalized process um, where older people can sit on these benches and other people can just come and sit there and and chat to them about, you know, different issues that they've got going. And actually it's a, you know, it's a great role for everyone in there. Yeah. And I suppose that it, it's interesting because as we see the burden of mental health increase so much, you know, there's so many conversations about how we're going to deal with that burden. And then that comes into kind of, you know, patient autonomy and, and people's autonomy and responsibility to each other, but also their ability to cope with some things that don't need medicalization, mm. you know, that just need friendship, talking, working through issues, you know, senses of community, those, those things that's sometimes difficult for the medical profession to really value. Yeah. And just the sense of not being alone in your problems, mm-hmm. alone in your, um, in your health issues. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Lancet Voice. This podcast will be marking The Lancet's 200th anniversary throughout 2023 by focusing on the spotlights with lots of different guest hosts from across The Lancet group. Remember to subscribe if you haven't already, and we'll see you back here soon. Thanks so much for listening.